Welcome to the Intentionist Podcast, where we explore the interplay between intuition, spiritual health, and everything in between. I'm your host, Amy Schreiber. And I'm Hilary Zwallen. Our intention is to create a dialogue that inspires you to consciously forge your path with curiosity and compassion for life and its mysteries. everyone. We have a very exciting interview to share with you today. In this episode, Hillary welcomes evolutionary astrologer Tashi Powers to discuss what astrological patterns can teach us about ourselves as individuals and what they reveal about the trajectory of the collective. She discusses sharing, caring, and inclusion as hallmarks of the Aquarian age and details her own experience into astrology. From seeing angels as a child, to studying Tibetan Buddhism and yoga, to meeting influential teachers like Joseph Campbell. In addition to her inspirational personal story, Tashi and Hillary explore a ton of fascinating information. Not only does Tashi clear up misconceptions around planetary retrogrades, she also discusses Venus transits, deja vu, and provides an interesting perspective on ego development. They talk about the value of both meditation and study in developing intuitive skills, what we can do to engage with the current planetary cycles, and Tashi shares insights from her 2019 collective forecast. So there's a lot here. I learned so many new concepts in this episode, including what a Kumari kiss is and who the Vestal Virgins are. So listen on if you enjoy having your mind blown. But first, a bit about our guest. Tashi Powers was born in a rainforest on the outskirts of Vancouver, BC, and her gifts as an astrologer were evident as early as 14 years old. She's been reading charts since the early 1970s to help people understand their evolutionary path, what their karmic necessities amount to, and how to navigate life. She follows the guidance and teaching of Jeffrey Wolf Green, has an international practice, and is grateful to be able to share natural law with others. She lectures for Rama Institute and Evolutionary Astrology YouTube channel, and her book, The Mysteries of the Venus Pentagram, is available on Amazon, and you can find her online at astrodakini.com, A-S-T-R-O-D-A-K-I-N-I. Enjoy the interview. Tashi, thank you so much for joining me today here with on the Intentionist Podcast. I've been following you online and I've really researched a lot of the the work that you've done. And I've been so excited about the content that you put out and you're so knowledgeable in this area of astrology. So thank you for being here with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, great. So in astrological circles, there is this strong rhetoric that there is an ascension happening for all of mankind. And we've heard in zeitgeist, you know, in the zeitgeist and songs from the 1960s, like the age of Aquarius, and we see it framed as sometimes like these quote unquote last days or end of days concepts in some Christian based faiths or circles. So there's this tension, I think, between the optimism of a new age and the gloom and doom of everything's going to hell in a handbasket. So can you talk to me about that tension and what is meant in astrological circles about ascension? I haven't actually heard the word ascension in my astrological circles, but the age of Aquarius certainly resonates. And Yogi Bhajan said that he thought it started when Pluto and Uranus were conjunct in 1966. But we think that there's many, many stages of it. And so there was a Venus-Sun very long cycle that also happened between 2008 and 2012, which was also a part of what we could call an ascension of the Sun-Venus energy, which is a gift to humanity. And then some people are saying that when Pluto goes into Aquarius in 2024, that will be another turning point for the age of Aquarius. But ever since I have studied astrology, people have said to me, oh, I hear the world's going to end for some reason or another, like 1999. And I always have to say, you know, I joke and I say, we're not that lucky because I don't think there's such, I think we're all eternal beings. And as much as I love the beautiful earth, you know, I, I, we're not going anywhere. So I think religion uses fear to keep people in check. And I think astrology Evolutionary astrology, especially, is not about forecasting the future at all. It's about teaching human beings how they are interdependent with each other 
and co-creating ultimately with the universe. And they must learn to study natural law in order to know how to do that. So two follow-up questions. One, and you, you kind of touched it right here, but what is the difference between, you know, you're an evolutionary astrologer. So what is the difference between evolutionary astrology and what other people might think are other forms of astrology? So astrology has been around in, in you know, human history for at least 10,000 years that we know of the Vedic tradition. And then I think the Sumerian and the Babylonian can go back much longer. And all of it is basically correlation and observation. What happened with evolutionary astrology is my teacher, a wonderful astrologer named Jeffrey Wolf Green, channeled in dreams information from Sri Yukitswar, who was Pramahansa Yogananda's teacher. And with that channeling and all of his vast experience of reading tens of thousands of charts and correlating and observing, he came up with evolutionary astrology, which I think is just a wonderful heart soul based, you know, especially soul based look at how human beings are affected by the etheric dimension of planetary frequency. Wow. So you've been an astrologer. I've heard you mention you've been an astrologer for um, like 40 years. So how long have you been taking the evolutionary astrology approach versus whatever form of astrology was being practiced before? I studied with Jeffrey at a seminar in the 80s, and that was eye-opening. And then in the 90s, I got a chart reading with Jeffrey, which was mind-blowing. And then I found out he was teaching um, evolutionary astrology to astrologers. So I went and sat with a bunch of beginners. (laughs) I had clients all over the world, famous clients all over the world already. And I just sat there and started over. And I believe that was the mid-90s. Wow. So how important in your view are the origin stories and mythology versus intuitive, symbolic interpretation and kind of the mathematical geometry of astrology? So the mathematical geometry of astrology, let's start there. That is what astrology is. It is all of these intersections and phases of planets in relationship with each other and in relationship to the earth. And we are affected by those geometrical patterns. And mythological, well, so here's the thing about mythology. Depends on who's telling the story and who dreamt it up and how they heard the story, you know. Right. A lot of the patriarchal um, myths, for example, there's a very famous myth about Inanna and her sister Urshkukul. And I wrote a book about this called The Mysteries of the Venus Pentagram. And in it, I pretty much tell my reader that the patriarchy has distorted the matriarchal view of this. And there's actual physical proof of this distortion because we didn't know when we were observing the heavens that Venus was a morning star and an evening star. We actually thought she was two different planets, one that set at night and then this other thing that disappeared for 40 days and 40 nights. Interesting. Yeah, right. Very Christian, right? Very Christian. And then came back as an evening star. We now know she was the same star. And in most of the myths, women descend into hell or purgatory or the underworld where they experience horrible, you know, things for 40 days and 40 nights. But in fact, Venus, the reason we couldn't see her because she was in the glare of sunlight. So what if they'd been telling that myth? So I think myths Mm. have a lot of distortion. Mm, And mm -hmm. right now we're suffering from patriarchal distortion. Now we've also suffered from matriarchal distortion before that. And the age of Aquarius is the end of all of this distortion, which will take a long time. And, you know, getting back to just the facts, ma'am, which, you know, the facts are always changing because we couldn't see Venus. So whether it was distorted or not distorted, we, we didn't know where she was. We didn't know she was in sunlight. We didn't have that ability to know that. So it sounds like from what you're saying that is, is Venus a more important planet than other planets in terms of moving into the age of Aquarius or am I inferring that wrong? I don't know how important she is. I think Pluto and Uranus are more important personally, but all of them are extremely influential and important. And what we're talking about is timing, basically, how to know the timing So they're all going to play their part because they're all aspects of our evolutionary patterns and what we have to learn here. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey with astrology? How did you get into the field? 
you know, I interviewed Remington Donovan a few months ago. He's an LA-based numerologist and for as a reference to our any of our new listeners here. And he referenced you multiple times in conversations outside of our conversation about being an astrologer's astrologer and and your knowledge. And this is one of the reasons why I started researching you. And so I know this has been a lifetime pursuit for you, but how, how has that journey changed and, and well, how did you I, get into I, it? I met at the time the most influential astrologer on the planet, a man named Dane Ridjar. He came to speak at a place where I was actually a volunteer to help clean up an oil spill at the San Francisco Bay. And it was called Project One. And he was speaking there about the seed cycle. And I was, you know, young, a teenager in high school. And he asked me if I knew my birth chart, and I didn't. I didn't know about astrology up until that point. But of course, I knew my birthday, and I told him I was a C-section baby. So he guessed my time of birth fairly accurately, because they birth babies in hospitals around the same time, I guess, in those years. And he read my chart, and it blew my mind. Now, this was this man is considered Dane Rajar, one of the best astrologers who ever lived. So we all still study and read his books. That was a, a, an epiphany of sorts, a kind of a, a transmission, a spiritual awakening. Because, yeah. But I didn't know that at the time. And then I got lucky enough to meet Joseph Campbell a few years later at um, the University of British Columbia. So wow. and I've just been so blessed with teachers and learning that mythology and I was studying Tibetan Buddhism as well. And he was giving a talk on Tibetan Buddhism and mythology. It all kind of came together and gave me a huge depth of understanding. This is interesting because, like I said before, one of the reasons I was so eager to interview you is that you seem to have a very academic approach to what you do. And when you speak, it feels like I'm receiving a lecture from an Egyptologist or a college professor. I've watched <laughs> several YouTube videos of your lectures. I've listened to podcasts. And you're very giving and pro open source when it comes to sharing content. And so, you know, what are your thoughts behind that? I mean, clearly, you know, I, I wanted to ask you also about Joseph Campbell. I'm, I've always been a huge fan of his work and I just think his, the power of myth and hero with a thousand faces and all of the work that he did is so influential to the new age. So first question before I get ahead of myself, the pro open source, when it comes to sharing content, what are your thoughts? Like, the, the age of Aquarius is sharing, caring, inclusion. We have to care about each other. You know, we have to get off hating and disparaging each other. We have to be more understanding of how we create everything. And therefore, if we share and care um, and open source things, we can help each other. I mean, look at the revolution in the world with Uber and Lyft and Airbnb and all these things, how much easier life is now. Well, and I know even Elon Musk, right? He's got all of his Tesla information that's totally available. Like nothing right. is patented. Well, they were going to steal it from him. So he just made it public because then if you share it with everybody, you know, there's this old Zen saying of the difference between heaven and hell. And we have to use heaven and hell because we don't have nirvana and, you know, density. <laughs> but, right. <laughs> so right. this little child is with its guardian angel in the version of this story. And he says, what's the difference between heaven and hell? So an angel takes the little boy to the Holiday Inn and opens up a ballroom. And there's all these people there emaciated and gray and dying and sobbing and hungry. And in the middle is a big cauldron of soup and they have these long spoons, but they can't get the soup back into their own mouths. So they're starving to death. And the angel says, that's hell. They go next door, exactly the same room, same amount of people, same long spoon, same cauldron of soup. And they're feeding each other and they're fine hmm. because the spoons, they can feed each other and that's heaven. So to me, this sharing, caring inclusion is an example of that, you know, and you can see the difference in our world because it's as Uranus and Pluto have moved out of their opening square since the 60s, we've begun to learn to share and care. It's, it's interesting to see it play out to just collectively, because I think on the one hand, you have so much for sale, right? And, and I mean, I, I'm not against people selling content. I mean, I love buying books. I, I love supporting authors and, and thinkers and writers and, and creators. But this idea of the scarcity versus abundance is is something that I, I'm definitely working out in my own life. So, so I, I really 
it resonated with me to hear you talk so much so openly about, you know, here's where you go to find this information. Here's how you do it. It's not some exclusive club that's very expensive to access. There's a lot of free information right. available. And, and, you know, there are not enough good evolutionary astrologers in the world for us to bogart the access to the information. And the information is free. It's just that you don't have the knowledge to know what to ask for. You know, if I teach people keywords, they go, I found it. You taught me the right keyword. But I... <laughs> Yeah, and I think a lot of, apparently Shiva put a curse on astrologers so they'd always fight. And I think we're getting out, the, the millennials and, the, and us older astrologers, we understand that to help humanity know, we know this cosmic clock gives all kinds of information because we know so much about perfect strangers and we're able to give them decent advice on the art of living, you know, so we want to share that, we want to help. Was it challenging for you to step into the intuitive arts and, and how did your community receive you? I know this is something that as the patriarchy dismantles, there's a lot of people leaving the places of, you know, the communities of their birth in so many ways and maybe feeling like they're having uh, a call to doing things in these intuitive yogic uh, healing spaces. And there, I think there's a lot of fear of how will I be received? So I'm curious about how your process was. You know, people are excited to meet someone like myself who can help them, who's intuitive and perhaps prescient at times. And so I don't ever receive much difficulty. In my young life, we had a joke in our family, which was if I was getting too prescient, too intuitive and knowing things that others didn't know, my mother would get on she'd pick up this, you know, invisible phone and she'd go, hello, Manny's happy farm. I've got a live one for you. And that was <laughs> our joke that people couldn't handle it and that I shouldn't be telling them things because I was born hearing and seeing angels, beautiful blue angels. And until I went to school and they had to pass me through third grade because I just was so School was too easy for me. I was talking to these angels the whole time. And I guess getting answers and laughing and giggling and disruptive. And I was a nice child. So it wasn't like I was disruptive, difficult. You know, I was just mm -hmm. pleasantly giggling. And I was definitely told by my family and then later by certain teachers of spiritual things that I should be quiet about any gifts and not talk about them so much. So I, I became quiet and I just became very serious about meditation and developing my gifts because when I met teachers from the East who were so developed, I was mm -hmm. like, wow, you can get that developed through meditation. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to be a serious meditator. So I became a very dedicated meditator and that certainly helped me with my intuition as it does, you know? Right. But astrology is something that is a, I would call it a, I call it a science and you have to study it very carefully. So I studied it and I continue to study it. I, I, I like to say I'm always in square one. There's so much to learn. It's so vast. It is. It does feel extremely complicated. You know, I've spent I've spent quite a bit of time researching astrology myself. And I and I feel like I'm, you know, I don't I don't even it doesn't even make much sense to me. You know, I mean, I try in, in, uh, in broad breaststrokes, but when, you know, you, I, you actually gave me a reading yesterday. And so looking at my chart, it was just like, <laughs> it just looks like a foreign code, you know, it's like, help me uncode this. So I, I get what you're saying. I wanted to, you, you brought up a couple of interesting points, Tashi. And one is that people find you as a teacher, and then you had the gift of being connected to some pretty incredible teachers. And I wanted to ask you to go back to the Joseph Campbell point. What was your interaction there? How did that come about? You know, what, what's your thoughts on, on um, almost this, um, what's the word? This synchronicity this, of meeting him. Yeah. See, yeah. Synchronicity, <laughs> but also this gathering of, of like passing the torch. I think of when I think of teachers, I think of what a beautiful thing it is for, and what an, what an amazing act of service it is to, to teach in any form, really. Yeah, I, I, I think what happened to me now is that I feel so blessed by the teachers who I found in my life that I'm very dedicated to being that person and stepping up and sharing all this knowledge of myth I have from Joseph Campbell, who I met when I was 19. He, uh, he had a friend named Jack Schwartz, and Jack was one of my teachers. I met Jack Schwartz and Colin Rinpoche both at the same time in Vancouver, where I was born in Canada. 
And um, he, Jack said to me, my friend Joe is coming to teach at UBC and he's teaching on Tibetan Buddhism and mythology. Why don't you join us for the weekend? Now, Joseph Campbell wasn't famous yet. He, he wasn't on TV yet. Mm-hmm. And, but Jack Schwartz was an amazing human being. Like he, he could teach you how to see the aura. And um, he was one of the ones who told me, don't tell people that you can do that. You know? And so I kind of occluded it so that I couldn't do it all the time. And mm-hmm. didn't practice it because I didn't want to be that far ahead of other people because he told me it was rather dangerous. And I don't think it's dangerous now. But so I met Joe and, uh, and I got to have lunch with him and talk to him and meet him. And it wasn't intimidating because he was a college professor and he wasn't famous. So it was very normal. And he was wonderful and kind. And, and I was a student of his very close friend who was an amazingly uh, gifted human being. So... It was kind of like la-di-da, you know, it was mm. wonderful and mind-blowing. And whenever I heard that Joseph Campbell was anywhere and I was nearby and he was giving a seminar, I would go. And nobody had heard of him. And it was, you know, really kind of sad for me that nobody wanted to go with me. But eventually I met people who were going and, and you know, I got to study with him and I read his books and and we know how much he influenced everything now I know. after that. Yeah. yeah, now I know. But um, then, yeah, I have funny stories about meeting people who didn't know who he was, which I won't embarrass them on, on the air. <laughs> well, so, so there seems to be a true resurgence of leaning on the cosmos for answers. I mean, I went into Costco the other day, and I live in a pretty conservative community in Central California, and I saw several books on astrology, which was definitely not the case a few years ago when I was going through my faith crisis and I was searching for you know, just different f- types of answers on, on these, on these concepts. So it's hit the mainstream and there are some very commercialized elements to it. And I'd, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. In evolutionary astrology, we believe you have to have compassion and understanding for anyone in any stage of, of their evolutionary de- development and therefore be very non-judgmental. And when I was about, I don't know, young, 12, 10, somebody said to me, maybe younger, why can you see angels and we can't? So I asked my angels and they said, it's because you're non-judgmental, which was mm-hmm. such a huge word to me. I, I said, well, that's what they told me. I don't know what it means. <laughs> but I think that people are searching for answers. Religion um, has become so patriarchal, hierarchically heavy-handed. There's so much ugly, ugly sexual business in the church and it's creeping people out. And so they can't go, they just can't go to a priest when they know that, you know, the church is um, holding up sex offenders and hiding them. So that's one of the churches. And then there's just a real crisis in faith for people as we know so much more about the universe we live in. Mm -hmm. All of it, you know, Tibetan Buddhism as well. I remember when they told me that we had a blue sky because we were facing a lapis lazuli stone and there was a mountain in the middle of the of the cosmos. I was like, are you sure about that? And they were absolutely adamant that that was true. And I thought, well, you know, I don't know that they're wrong, but it seems very likely that they're wrong, you know. And they wouldn't discuss it. And they also had these other ideas, very patriarchal, hierarchical, that women were a lower birth. And I've heard the Dalai Lama say that, you know, don't, don't blame the Chinese. We had to come to the West to meet Western women and realize women are not a lower birth. So that business of the church itself... That's because they thought Chinese women were? No, not Chinese women. All women, any kind of woman on earth, was a lower birth than a male. And I think many religions have that kind right. of underlying right. kind of premise, which we know is nonsense. We, we pray, So when women leave the church, then the men go with them, you know, and their children mm. don't learn it either. And eventually the kind of heavy handedness in the church has caused us to say, yeah, maybe, you know, we can believe in quote unquote God, but we can also call it the universe and the cosmos. And And we can be much more open to all the possibilities. Well, we also never had access to knowing about so many other religions. So when our parents told us you have to obey this one, we didn't know about other ones. I was quite lucky in that my parents said, don't make up your mind until you've read about all the religions in your twenties, what you want to think. And I was like, wow. Yeah, I was lucky. That is very progressive. That's awesome. They were. Yeah, they were. So I've started to track my menstrual cycle with the moon cycle. And I've been doing this for about five months now. And I've seen some really interesting patterns emerge. And it has been really helpful for me to understand my own cycle and how, especially as women, 
it can affect creativity, productivity, and just our general environment. So it's led me to a much greater interest in how the stars and the planet affects me, as well as the collective. However, I've also noticed that as I've become more in tune with the moon and nature and the cosmos, which I think is happening, to your point, with a lot of people, that there are times when I fall into patterns of thinking that are much more of a like duck for cover or even somewhat of a victim mentality towards the cosmos. You know, oh no, Mercury's in retrograde. I'm having a Saturn return. The full moon is in Pisces and I just feel lost. You know, he's a Gemini. So like whatever, these judgments that we, these blanket judgments that we do. So it's almost as if I'm being acted upon. And I also see that, you know, this rhetoric is a lot on social media. So what are your thoughts or advice on working with the cosmos and, and kind of, you know, how much do we really have to, like, how much are we really influenced by the planets? If I know that's probably too broad of a question, but. No, no. I mean, I think that there are just like in everything, there are people who enter entry level of an understanding to something is highly distorted and diluted and compromised by their actual lack of understanding. But because they can get attention, because it's, you know, kind of cool or groovy to talk about Mercury retrograde, they'll get it all wrong. I was actually at a dinner party and the, the person that I was there to meet was telling everybody at the dinner party, he thought he was so clever, how great it was going to be because we were only going to have Mercury retrograde and no other planets were going to be retrograde. And, you know, even though we'd have to go through Mercury retrograde. And I just kind of looked at him and I said, dude, Mercury retrograde is about individuation. All retrogrades are about individuation. They're allowing us to have a better look at the consensus orientation and we can reorient to our own personal individuated desires of how we want to respond to that. So let's say we're being influenced by our boss to behave badly. And we, when Mercury goes retrograde, we're going to rethink all that. We're going to look at all the consequences, not just the social ones, not just the karmic ones, but like why our stomach hurts all the time when we go to work. And we might quit our job because we might go, oh, this, you know, I can't do this. So it's the retrograde planets throw our, throw ourselves back on ourselves. That's what they're, what they're for. But people have not understood this. Okay. So just kind of like we didn't know that Venus was two planets. We're in a huge breakthrough period as a society where we're really getting, because of the internet, to learn. You don't have to go to school. You can turn on your phone that's in your pocket and look it up. And it's eventually amazing. you'll find someone like me or Jeffrey Wolf Green who explains that Mercury retrograde is about individuation. All retrogrades are about individuation. That's a that's the best uh, explanation I've ever heard of that. <laughs> so it actually gives me a lot of hope because it, it, it helps you to, it, it's almost like looking at it like every, t- every time there's a planetary event to just look at it like a gift instead of, oh no, what's coming? Because there's almost like, there is for me at least in the last several years as I've, as I've tracked myself along with the cosmos in terms of my own feminine cycles and just my own life, that there are emotional, physical events that occur in conjunction with what's happening in the cosmos. But I always feel so out of control. And so it's really, it's really interesting to to take that perspective and think, you know, this is really all, all a way for soul growth to happen, for us to turn the lens inward and almost use this energy, this cosmic energy. Yeah, that's what it's for. And as you get more and more individuated, you slow down because you're not running around doing all these consensus things that you don't want to do. They don't resonate with you. And the retrogrades are the times to pay attention to the dissonance and say, oh, I don't like this. So then you free up time to do things that are important for your soul growth. And then you get deeper and you have time to read and you have time to focus on what you want to do. And that's how you grow. That's how you wake up. And when you start to pay attention to things like your lunar cycle, you'll begin to realize that it's responding either to the moon Venus, which is every 33 days, or the moon sun, which is 28 days. And you'll have a full moon or a new moon period, probably. You'll begin to see that correlation and you go, wow. So this is the observation correlation game. And the more you observe and the more you correlate, the more you stand in awe at that how it, there's actually patterns. 
It really is beautiful. So let's talk about the rise of the divine feminine. I know we've touched on it briefly here and there as the, with the dismantling of the patriarchy and the Aquarian age, but you know, for me, like two years ago, I felt like I was getting whisperings and seeing things play out in my own life where I was absolutely awakening to these divine feminine principles. And then I've discovered these certain astrological circles, namely you and And I thought it was really interesting how it just felt like there was this huge shift of consciousness literally written in the stars (laughs) and that there's something literally happening on the collective level. And so it was interesting for me to learn about the Venus transits. Can you tell us about that? The fiery pentagram of the Venus transit is formed um, over thousands of years and over eight year periods and over nine month periods, which is fascinating, nine month periods, we have, mm-hmm. yeah, we have these sun Venus conjunctions every nine months and one is retrograde, which means one of Venus is going backwards. And one is when they're, when Venus is direct. And these are points in our evolutionary gates where we are given gifts. Um, like the last big one was the internet. And before that, they corresponded to electricity and the telephone and huge revolutions that changed the earth completely and humanity completely. And so um, when you study these cycles, you'll see how they correlate to changes in human society. And this is Venus. So it seems to be one of the etheric frequencies that is a gift to humanity so that we can just be better at living, learning more. And I think because we've just gone through one of these phases that takes thousands of years and I'm trying to look up the exact timing in my book to tell you, because we've had one of these in 2012, we are in a phase where we've just gone up and got this huge gift, which I call the Kamari kiss. And so we are unfolding from the 2012 gate, which of course the Mayan calendar was also based on Venus. So they knew that in 2012, a new cycle would be beginning. And so it wasn't the end of time for them. It was a new beginning, but of course, many people interpreted it very incorrectly. Right. So you told me yesterday that in, in my reading with you that I was born on a Venus gate. You were and born so, on a moon Venus gate. Yeah. A moon Venus gate. Okay. So what does that mean? And how can people, if we have our listeners find out if they have Venus gates in their chart or does, do all of us have Venus gates in our chart? Well, we're all born near a Venus gate. You were born mm-hmm. right on the very day, which means that you're gifted, you know, look at you finding, um, an astrologer who wrote a book. I just published this book and I haven't done much to, um, promote it. So and it's called the mysteries of the Venus pentagram for our listeners. If you're interested in getting this book, I have this book. I think it's really fascinating. And it was the first time I'd ever heard anything about this, uh, Venus, these Venus transits. And I found it to be very, very fascinating. So I highly recommend going and picking it up on Amazon. It's on Amazon. So I wanted to ask you too, you, in your book, in this Mysteries of the Venus Pentagram, you have a few pictures of your angels and you've mentioned them before. So I'm just curious about your relationship to them. And, you know, can can you talk about that? Can you talk about your relationship with with those angels? I know you have pictures of them. And I thought that was really fascinating that you actually had images. I, I saw my angels when I was young and a baby, and I talked about them a lot. And Somewhere in my early schooling, I stopped seeing them when I was told to stop talking to them. And they're, I have two of them, a boy and a girl, and they're apparently my guardian angels. And they told me everybody has guardian angels and that guardian angels, because people can't see them or hear them, they can see like 24. They, what, the way they're watching your life is like on 24 kind of screens. They can see the past, present and future and they can guide you. And so you have dreams and you go work with them when you're sleeping. And then they'll show you something. And that's what I think we have called deja vu. And yes. can, and you'll go back and you'll review things. So you can review anything anyone said about you. And, and you can review things so that you can evolve and grow. You get all this help when you're sleeping. And so when I was 33, I was doing a whole bunch of meditation using the Bonoro Beat head, headsets. Mm-hmm. And I woke up at 3.30 in the morning and they were in my bedroom. And I, I hadn't seen them since maybe I was eight, nine, 10, 11, somewhere around there. And I was like, oh. and the one of them went and hid. And the other one, were you ah. afraid? No, they're beautiful. I was in a state of bliss. Mm. They're beautiful and their energy is beautiful. And after that period, which is, you know, 30 some years ago now, I've always heard them again. 
I got these pictures, I was going through a lot of grieving and I think that they appeared, actually the fairies appeared after I read a book called Behaving as if God Mattered, which is about fairies and spirits. It's the most wonderful book. The fairies appeared and I was running to get my camera when I realized my had a cell phone and it had a camera. And I thought, let's see if I can get pictures. And I got all those pictures. And then they just kept coming and appearing. So I kept taking pictures and then it stopped. And I think it's because I was grieving and I was very sad. And, and because I know sometimes they'll help me when I have a client who's very sad, I'll hear things from them that I don't hear for other people, you know, mm. and I'll say why. And I go, well, they really needed that. And I'm like, okay, because they're really, apparently we're supposed to be very self-reliant and develop our self-worth and develop our strength. And they're supposed to help us, but we have to do the work. So Mm. They're not just going to lay it all out, you know, for us. Right. Do the work. Right. Thank you for sharing that. I think that was a really beautiful story. And it always gives me a lot of hope when I hear other people's, I, mean, I guess you could call it supernatural spiritual experiences. Yeah. I think that's why we have to share them. <laughs> it, you know, it does make me feel like, yeah, that we're all, we're, we're all connected in this, in this other way. So so how exactly are the, how is the pentagram formed? Is it, it's just the, the orbit of Venus around the earth. Okay. So on page 28 of my book, I talk about these 243 year cycles that overlap. And we just had one end in 2004. And then a new one began in 2012. And that's the eight year transit of Venus. And so the next one that is going to be an eight-year transit of Venus is 2017 to 2025. And they are these beautiful pentagrams that happen when Venus, the sun, and the earth line up. And they make, they actually make something that looks like a rose in space. They make this beautiful five-pointed star. It's absolutely gorgeous. And on the internet, there's all kinds of, um, just look for it, earth, Venus, sun, pentagram. Beautiful. And you'll be able to see what it looks like. And it will absolutely blow your mind. And if you're born, well, you're born around one of these. So there's um, a site, find your Venus star point, And you can look up your five star points that my book tells you then how to work with. Interesting. And you can also look up what's going on in 2019. Like we, we just had the last gate of Venus was in... Um, November, right? No, that was the last pentagram point. Oh, okay. That was November 1st. We've just had a moon gate on March 2nd, and the next one's April 2nd at 7 Pisces, and then we have one on May 2nd and June 1st. So the moon, the Venus moon gate happens more frequently? It happens once a year when Venus is a morning star, and then once a year when Venus is an evening oh, star. Oh, okay, okay. That's cool. And I was born on the date of that. You or, were does born it... on the date of that, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's very special. That's given you a lot of talent. Well, that's, it's so, I mean, my ego is loving that. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm so special. But <laughs> well, in evolutionary astrology, we need to develop the ego and then we need to get lots of attention for our talent. And then we need to learn to serve humanity and each other. So good luck with your ego. That is such a different framework than it is. Yeah. How, I mean, that is blowing my mind, even just hearing about that. Yeah. You know, like even hearing you say that, I, I remember you talking about that in the reading yesterday and I was just like, uh, this is, I've never heard this before. Like I've heard a lot of things and I've never heard that. That's well, it's in fascinating. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wolf Green's book, the glossary evolutionary astrology glossary is available on the school of evolutionary astrology website. So you can Google it and that book will really help you understand the basics. If anyone wants to, I'm sure it's available on the internet and it's available as a book. So Tashi, today is the spring equinox and full moon. And so what does that mean for us astrologically? Well, the spring equinox is about a dynamic change on Earth. It's the sun is moving over the celestial equator and the Earth's equator. And it moves from so southern hemisphere to northern hemisphere. And as it crosses that equator, there's this powerful imprint of a chart that ancient astrologers used to use to predict things for kings, you know, for the next mm. three months until the summer solstice. So contemporary astrologers like myself use this to see patterns in society, to see patterns in um, social development. And by social development, I mean our social world, you know, our politics, 
our film, our music, that's our social world, our collective world. The collective, right? Yeah. And so we see patterns there and you can also apply it if you know how to do it with a working astrologer to help you see what does the Virgo rising of the chart for the Aries ingress mean to you? We're all going to be more involved in self-improvement and we all have to get out of domination submission, but mostly a Virgo is victim martyrdom. So uh, compliment God, don't complain. Compliment, compliment, don't complain. That's the Virgo need. And the in the Aries ingress chart, which is a chart that gets laid down and we can study it, it works for three months till the summer solstice. We pay attention to what's going on and we can predict things from it. I, I don't do that work that much, but, but as, mm. uh, political astrologers use it. And then the full moon will be a few hours after the, in, the ingress of the sun into Aries. And the moon will have moved from 27 Virgo to 00 Libra. So it's a full moon in Libra and the sun at 00 Aries, of course, is still there for the whole day. And this says that the next two weeks are about developing our ability to listen, our ability to relate, our ability to make decisions for ourselves, our ability to be considerate of other people while honoring ourselves. And there's three months of self-honoring while um, Aries sun lasts, that grid lasts. So we have three months of working on self-honoring. And then in the summer, when we hit the summer solstice, we start to work on emotional growth, which is very mm. important for our, our spiritual evolutionary development. Both evolutionary astrology, Jeffrey Wolf Green and Yogi Bhajan, really talk about how important it is for our development to develop ourselves emotionally and be positive. So really as the spring springs forward and the sun comes up over the equator, think of it like a little sprout sprouting in a garden. Now Mm -hmm. you have to nurture it so that you can, it's all based on a seed cycle kind of idea. You have to nurture it. So at the summer solstice, you'll have fruit on that tree. Right. Now, when you mention this Aries for the next three months, is that typical for every year or is it just because of where we're at right now? Every year, the sun crosses the Aries, the spring equinox, and that's Aries. And that chart lasts three months. And then the summer solstice chart lasts three months and the fall equinox lasts three months. But every chart of every day is also very significant. So this is why astrology takes a while to learn because there's cycles within cycles. And there's Mm. lots of fairly competent astrologers who don't use all these cycles. They don't feel the need to. So you don't have to know them all. I just happen to Mm. be a Gemini. And the more I can know, as I'm getting older, the more I know it doesn't matter. I have to learn to feel. You have to feel things. But I like like the feeling of spring. Let's put it that way. (laughs) I do too. That maiden phase where everything is fertile and growing. I love that. So are there any specific practices we can do to engage with this energy? I believe that meditation engages the subtle frequencies of planets and helps you Mm -hmm. be more synchronistically attuned to all that is if you don't want to learn it, you know, intellectually. Mm -hmm. Um, I myself have been a meditator since I was young, very young, about 17. I also believe that some people need to do dance and paint art. Not everybody needs to sit on a pillow and chant, you know. Right. And breathing and really, I think mostly authenticity, integrity, enriching yourself and others and being responsible. These are Vedic practices, Vedic words. And I really believe that if you practice that, your life will really help you be aligned to the higher, better outcomes of everything. And you will overcome your distortions and delusions and dilutions of energy (laughs) if you practice being a really good person. It's very sage advice. Um, (laughs) I love it. What are some qualities or cosmic events that we can expect? You know, this, I guess we talked about the spring, but for the rest of 2019, and I know you said you don't do a lot of the political astrology, but do you take a look at kind of at the beginning of the year, kind of forecast, you know, what 2019 is going to be about? Do you have any insight on that? I did it with like 40 good astrologers, good evolutionary astrologers. It's on YouTube. There's all of us on there. Well, Uranus went into Taurus March 6th, and that's something that's going to last for seven years. And that's a big deal. I think it's going to change our economics. I think eventually things like Lyft and Uber, uh, that kind of sharing is going to turn into monetary sharing with Bitcoin. And it'll take a few years probably for it to catch on, but it's coming. You know, astrologers know how to see these things. 
Like we saw that we saw the end of the Catholic Church and the end of religion when Pluto went into Sagittarius. We could see that. And now Pluto's in Capricorn. So next year, early 2020, we have a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction with Pluto and other planets in Capricorn. And we believe that we're moving towards that, which is huge reform in our government and in our economic system. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, because Uranus in Taurus is causing us to really reevaluate what we're paying for, what we're doing. Hmm. Yeah. And what is it about Uranus? I know, you know, we did a an episode last month on Neptune and Pisces. So I learned for the first time what Neptune was and that it was this kind of the it's this big spiritual all soul planet. What what is Uranus known for? Um, we call it freedom from the known. We call it waking up and being more present in the moment, be here now, a be here now kind of planet. It's also known for trauma and for past traumas, like in your past lives that you have to work out. Evolutionary astrology looks to past lives. And fascinating. yeah, we, we try to figure out patterns and we see that they go back farther than this life. There's a multidimensionality to it. And Uranus is about waking up and being free from your limiting concepts. And Neptune is not projecting your limiting beliefs onto existing reality. So these outer planets and Pluto then is about getting your soul surrendering to this part of yourself that's this vast multidimensional being that has a soul that's guiding itself. So Uranus is waking up and, and letting your mind listen, you know, and, and pay attention to the bigger picture. It's also wow. about community, and that's why so many communities, new communities will be formed on the internet. When Uranus went through Aries, it just ripped through the world. That was Uranus entering Aries was the Arab Spring, and it was also that tsunami. That was the same day. That wow. tsunami was the same day as Uranus going to Aries. We have had value changes. We're having a lot of value changes. People's values are changing, and we've had all these women. Taurus is female in government now, change, wanting to change things. Oh, it's so interesting to hear you talk about this. Now, um, I have one final question. And I, when we spoke yesterday, you talked about the Vestal Virgins. And I wondered if you could mention a little bit about what that is. The Vestal Virgins are, were part of the Palace of Athena in ancient history. And my teacher, Jeffrey Wolf Green, had me read a book called The Great Cosmic Mother so that we could understand what happened to the matriarchy and how it gave over to the patriarchy so that we could now understand as patriarchy was ending, how that was going and that we weren't going back to matriarchy. We were going back to equality consciousness, which is the age of Aquarius. So we were backing out of, we're backing out of Capricorn and Cancer into Aquarius going forward. And we're going backwards out of Pisces, Virgo into Cap, into Aquarius so the shadow, this is a long answer, but I'll get there. The shadow That's of Cap great. Capricorn great. Cancer is domination submission. So we have to leave that behind. And the shadow of Virgo Pisces is victim martyrdom. So we have to get over that. And that's religion and Christ and all that victimhood, all right? And then that's why religion is going down the tubes. And then Aquarius has a shadow of diva sycophant. And we see that in our celebrity culture. Everybody worships celebrity. Yes, and yes they have the shadow of diva and they have to learn once they get enough attention for their talent and they've entertained us and hopefully, you know, given us some insight into the art of living, they have to give back to their community and that's Aquarius. So that's Leo Aquarius. So all these shadows have to be worked on and the shadow in the Vestal Virgin time, I think many souls have come back and I think the Vestal Virgins were like initiators that knew how to help uh, people move through their chakras and see the energies of their chakras. And now we have Kundalini yoga and we're able to do meditations and help us move through our chakras doing that. And so what I'm seeing is this correspondence between many people who do take Kundalini yoga seriously and do practices to open up their third eye correlating to past lives when they were Vestal virgins, where maybe they were traumatized or even killed as the patriarchy was taking over and they didn't want to admit that they couldn't do it. So it's a very, you know, deep and he fairly heavy subject. I talk about it on Rama TV and I think you can go to Rama TV if you're a subscriber 
and see it or purchase it. It was a two-hour class that I gave in New York City in March of 2019. Fascinating. So Tashi, that brings me to how can people get in touch with you? They can go to my website, which is astrodakini.com. And I have to say that every time I go on um, a show where they have like 50,000 listeners on a, on a radio show, my website used to get crashed. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, and broken and stolen. And, you know, um, so I, I'm trying to get it to be a little bit less about information and just more how to reach me. So there's not that much there, but it is definitely how you schedule a consultation with me. And I lecture mostly for Rama, R-A-M-A, um, Yoga Institute. And they have centers all over the world. And I work closely uh, with them because Yogi Bhajan was an astrologer. Guru Jagat, who has these centers, is an astrologer. And I love astrology. So I am really happy. Yes. And I love yoga. I've done it my whole life too. So the combination for me is really wonderful. And so that's mostly where you can find me. You're also on Instagram and I love your forecasts. I share them a lot on Intentionist, on our Intentionist feed. So is it Astro Dakini or is it Tashi Powers on Instagram? No, no, it's, I have more than one, but we're going to get rid of all of them just because I'm a little bit, you know, not, not savvy about it all. We'll get rid of them. And the one we're keeping is Tashi Astro Dakini. Tashi Astro Dakini. So find her on Instagram. Tashi, thank you so much for joining me today. We've really learned, I've learned so much. I hope our listeners have as well. And I know I've got about seven books that you've thrown out that I'm going to be, I'm going to be reading soon. And I I just really appreciate you taking the time um, and sharing your wisdom and, and being so open and willing to help us and our listeners. And when I heard your story, I really wanted to help. So I'll, I'll be very happy to you know, come back and give you more forecasts and help you out. Just ask me. Oh, thank you so You're much. Welcome. I'm so thrilled. I will. I, I will. I will be reaching out. <laughs> Thanks so much. It Tashi. was lovely to be here. Thank you for your interesting questions too. Before we part, we'd like to say thanks for listening, and we hope you'll connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We would love to hear from you and appreciate all feedback, shares, and likes. To learn more and subscribe to our newsletter, visit intentionists.com. And no matter where you are or what you're creating, we send you love and invite you to breathe and begin. See you next week.